Recently on the Marketplace Morning Report, you heard our Democracy in the Desert series. We took you to places characterized by researchers as news deserts to see what communities stand to lose when they're without a local news ecosystem, especially during an election year. This kind of reporting takes resources. David Brancaccio went on a six-day reporting trip with two of our producers, grounding themselves in these communities and meeting locals who are trying to find solutions and fill the gaps. Every donation to Marketplace helps sustain this kind of in-depth journalism. Please give what you can today at marketplace.org slash donate. Recently on the Marketplace Morning Report, you heard our Democracy in the Desert series. We took you to places characterized by researchers as news deserts to see what communities stand to lose when they're without a local news ecosystem, especially during an election year. This kind of reporting takes resources. David Brancaccio went on a six-day reporting trip with two of our producers, grounding themselves in these communities and meeting locals who are trying to find solutions and fill the gaps. Every donation to Marketplace helps sustain this kind of in-depth journalism. Please give what you can today at marketplace.org slash donate. Japan's stock market finally pulls out of a slump that lasted more than a generation. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. A milestone today in Japan after more than three decades. The key stock indicator for the Japanese market, the Nikkei 225, hit a new high. If you are 33 years old or so, you have never seen a Japanese market this high. Diane Swag, chief economist at the audit tax and advisory firm KPMG, remembers the bubble that preceded a slump of a generation and a half. I remember when, you know, we were worried that Japan Inc. was the name on books and on the titles of magazine covers, that they were going to overtake the U.S. And, you know, they own things like Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach. I mean, they're buying these high properties. And then they burst their bubble, went into the end of a bubble that was much worse than anything we saw after the global financial crisis in terms of duration. It went on for decades of stagnation, disinflation. I have a friend of mine who's an economist in Japan, and he was hoping that his children would be able to see with the renewed bit of inflation in um, Japan, actual wage gains instead of wage cuts in their lifetime. It's interesting. And part of what happened with taking Japan so long to move its way forward after that bubble is something that the U.S. faces, which is demography. We have an older population, and as people retire, they're out of the main wage and tax-paying parts of their lives. Exactly. And in fact, the demographic shift in Japan hit them much sooner than it hit us. We're bumping up against it now with the baby boom aging into retirement. It really sapped their labor force growth. And Economic growth is just a combination of two very simple things. The economy can only grow as fast as new workers are entering the labor force and as productive as those workers, each one of those workers are. And Japan lacked both the number of new workers coming into the labor force because of the aging demographics and a lack of productivity, which sent them into this long stagnation, disinflation period, and some bouts of deflation where they actually had to take cuts in their wages and losses in their living standards. And as bad as the global financial crisis and its aftermath was for the U.S., it was much less here than what they had to endure, but over the course of decades. 
NVIDIA, the big name in artificial intelligence microchips, posted spectacular profits yesterday, and its stock is up more than 14 percent at the moment. Some investors had bet big against the company in recent days, figuring its quarterly results would disappoint. Wrong. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Starting Monday, people eligible for food stamps can use SNAP benefits to pay for groceries delivered from a healthy food-focused online-only grocer called Thrive Market. Here's Savannah Marr. For about a decade, the USDA has been testing whether grocery delivery could help SNAP users. Nevin Cohen at the City University of New York says the pandemic gave a clear answer. The USDA realized that online shopping was really important especially for SNAP users with transportation or mobility challenges. Whether it's seniors or people with physical disabilities or caregivers of young children. Like the mom of a newborn who LaMonica Jones recently talked to. She shared that one of the saving graces for her was her ability to utilize her SNAP benefits online. Jones is with the nonprofit D.C. Hunger Solutions. She says residents of the poorest neighborhoods in that city have just one or two local grocers to choose from. Or take public transportation 30, 40 minutes to purchase groceries. Jones says delivery fees can be a barrier. But delivery services can also help SNAP users shop around for cheaper groceries outside their neighborhoods. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. We've been watching banks in recent weeks after Moody's downgraded to junk status, a mid-sized bank, New York community. The bank holds commercial real estate loans, and that sector has been sagging with so many people still working remotely. But are these fears justified? Kevin Fagan is head of commercial real estate economic analysis at Moody's Analytics, which we should note acts independently from Moody's credit rating agency. He spoke with my colleague, Sabri Beneshore. Can you explain the relationship 
between commercial real estate and banks, specifically regional banks, and why this has so many people worried. There's actually one bit of a frivolous reason why people are worried and that there was some kind of bad data that went around last year that suggested that the bank's exposure to commercial real estate was higher than it actually is. There was a stat going around that 80% of CRE lending was by regional banks. That's just patently not the case. Now, however, some of those regional banks actually do have high exposure and there are a lot of loan maturities coming in 2024 and some of those will result in losses. Well, that looks like it's kind of happening with uh, NYCB. Is NYCB a sign of things to come? In a way, yes, but I think the story is more nuanced than a lot of headlines suggest. Commercial real estate is a, if you think of it, it really is the physical manifestation of the entire economy. You know, so offices are reflective of office using employment. It really is a mirror to the entire economy. So it does tend to go up and down. But to directly answer your question, it is a sign of things to come because there will be other banks that have challenges but they're not going to see trouble unless they have other issues going on as well. There's something wrong with their business model. And actually, NYCB had a whole litany of other things going on. We know that a lot of people still work from home. We know that leases are long term and they're still getting renewed and renegotiated. What about that picture specifically for office does not freak you out? Office is still an extraordinarily important part of the workplace. It is not actually unprecedented what's happening in office. In the 1990s, there was a period of massive consolidation of how companies used office space, where they went from about 250 square feet per employee to half of that, around 225 square feet per employee. But office values and rents continued to go up. And the reason is, is that we shifted from manufacturing into services, professional services, and filled the offices up despite the net reduction in demand. So we'll see some more banks get in trouble, but like the other asset classes that are doing well will help them. You know, if they're doing well as a business, you know, they'll, they'll fare fairly well and they'll have recovery rates even on their offices or they can extend those maturities out a little further, particularly where they feel like, you know, that office has a good recoverability. Kevin Fagan is head of commercial real estate economic analysis at Moody's Analytics. Kevin, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Marketplace's Subri Beneshore on interview duty there. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media.